Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. I wonder why it's always so slightly embarrassing to hear your biog read out. It never gets any easier. I think it's because I know that you know I wrote it. So all the good things, you know that I wrote it. No one, no one gets anyone else to write their own bio, because you write your own. You write it in third person, so it makes you seem better. Um, constantly embarrassing. Um, OK, so pleasure to be here. I haven't been at the other two talks, but I heard they were really, really good. Um, so thank you to the other speakers. My aim is to prevent you from falling asleep for the next couple of hours. But of course, if you do fall asleep in this lecture, it's a great compliment. You love lucid dreaming so much, you're getting into the state and having your lucid dreams. Um, I did a talk once at this music festival called Secret Garden Party, which is, some people are nodding. It's a pretty druggy Secret Garden Party. It's pretty far out. And they gave me the graveyard shift of 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And I was like, who the fuck's going to be at my talk at 10 a.m.? But actually, loads of people, but they're all zombies who hadn't slept for the night before. And I go on stage, and I start talking about lucid dreaming and consciousness and stuff. And, um, and then, of course, the zombies walk in. And one of them literally falls asleep um, in the middle of this talk. And I got the whole crowd to go, no, you are dreaming. Wake up in your dreams. And the guy then wakes up and freaks. What the fuck? What the fuck? It was such a brilliant moment. <laughs> Highlight of my career, freaking out someone on drugs. <laughs> but seriously. OK, PowerPoints. Uh, I hardly ever do these because, I don't know, it just feels so corporate. But PowerPoints are good, especially when you've got a massive screen. So what we're going to do, uh, this first slide, is cover the basics, what lucid dreaming is, why you might want to do it, how it works. And crucially, today we're looking at the psychology of lucid dreaming. So the psychological benefits of lucid dreaming. Why would you want to do this? What benefit could lucid dreaming possibly have to your life and your psychological health? My answer is loads and loads of things. And I want to give you anecdotal reports as well as scientific studies that will hopefully prove that. Um, so what is a lucid dream? This is the interactive bit. Who's got a nice definition? Um, having uh, autonomous purpose, autonomy, being able to influence the dream on, on purpose with intention, absolutely. Anything to add to that? No, because it's a pretty good definition, yeah. So, a lucid dream is a dream where you are actively aware of the fact you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So it's not just a really vivid dream. Um, you'd be mistaken for thinking it is, though, because of the term lucid. The term lucid connotes clarity, clear seeing, something that was seen... Uh, seen through light, whereas actually that's not what defines a lucid experience. The definition of lucidity from a psychological point of view is the activation of self-reflective awareness within the seemingly unconscious dream state. The awakening of self or reactivation of self-reflective awareness within the seemingly unconscious dream state. So basically you're sound asleep but you go, oh, I'm aware that I'm sound asleep, I'm aware that I'm dreaming. Oh, I've broken the thing. Um, 
that is not accompanied by awakening. So you're not like half awake, half asleep. It's not in the hypnagogic state. It's not a shamanic journey. It's not an out-of-body experience. You're in REM dreaming sleep, rapid eye movement dreaming sleep. Anyone who knows anything about REM, someone in REM looks like this. You have muscular paralysis, very little movement. Uh, you're kind of out for the count, right? So it's not a kind of half awake, half asleep state. You're absolutely sleeping. Um, and that's why, for many years, lucid dreaming wasn't um, accepted by mainstream scientific community because they said it was a paradox. Um, how can you be both unconscious in REM dreaming sleep and conscious of the fact at the same time? It's impossible. Neurologically, it's impossible. No. We now know neurologically it's absolutely possible, and I'll show you the kind of uh, the brain stuff a little bit later. So we know what it is. It's a dream where you know that you're dreaming as the dream is happening. How does it work? It can be spontaneous. A lot of people have spontaneous lucid dreams where you're in the dream and something in the dream lets you know that you're dreaming. So it might be like a dead relative or you might be back at school when you're an adult. Hang on, what the hell am I doing back here? Oh, I must be dreaming. Who here has had the experience of spontaneous lucidity in a dream before? Okay, brilliant. Um, for those who didn't raise their hand, or maybe for those who did too, who here has had an experience of being in a nightmare and in the nightmare going, I've got to wake up, I've got to wake up. Anyone had that? Okay, that was also a lucid dream. Over a third of spontaneous lucid dreams um, in scientific uh, reports have been have started as nightmares or anxiety dreams. Why is this? Simply because fear boosts our awareness. If you're in a dream with low level of awareness and something really scary happens, you go, oh, I'm now more aware. And with that awareness, I'm more likely to see, hang on, how the hell did I get to a zombie apocalypse? Oh, I must be in a dream. Now, a little footnote here. This is a different talk. This is about the shadow work and stuff like that. But if you are ever lucky enough to become lucid in a nightmare, don't wake up. Every time you wake yourself from a nightmare, the psychological trauma, that, or, or simply the, the psychological energy that has led to the nightmare, remains unintegrated. My best advice to you is, if you become lucid in a nightmare, as Krishnamurti said, the seeing is the doing. Simply stay in the nightmare, knowing that it is simply a nightmare. That in itself can have life-changing results. Um, my work with veterans over the last few years has been helping some of them to get to this stage. Because when you're having a PTSD uh, flashback or PTSD nightmare that you're back in Iraq, the brain doesn't act like you're dreaming you're back in Iraq. The brain acts like you are back in Iraq. And actually these uh, men and women will often wake up sweating, not sweating because they were so scared, but sweating because it was hot in Iraq when the thing occurred, when the incident occurred. I mean, amazing how the body responds to trauma if it's uh, deeply ingrained PTSD trauma. Um, so for these people, if you can train them to know I'm not really back in Iraq in the traumatic experience, I'm dreaming I'm back in Iraq, that can be enough in itself to pick up the needle on the stuck record that is PTSD nightmares and allow the record to spin, allow the integration to occur. Because nightmares are good news. We don't want to not have nightmares. Nightmares are a sign of a healing mind. They're a sign of, of integration. But with PTSD, the, that kind of helpful system within the brain gets stuck. It becomes dysregulated. So we continue having these nightmares and eventually become re-traumatized by the nightmare itself. Sometimes it happens before it happens. Say again? Sometimes you have horrible dreams because something serious happens. A prophetic dream, absolutely. Yeah, that can very often happen. Um, yeah, in 10 years of doing these talks and workshops, I've seen and heard far too many reports of prophetic dreams to discount them. I have no idea how they work, but 
it cannot possibly be, uh, be hearsay. It, it, it must be a possibility, I just don't know how. Um, what it is, how does it work, how does it feel? Um, lucid dreams feel very real. People who think that a lucid dream is gonna be, you know like in films when they do dream, uh, dream scenes, and they say, oh, someone's in a dream, they always have smoke, and they always go to soft focus. I'm like, that is the opposite of a lucid dream. If you really wanna show how a lucid dream is, move from normal definition to super HD to show you're in a lucid dream, because that's what it's like. For example, and this isn't hyperbole, this is, this is fact. The lucid dream for most people is an experience of hyper-reality. Hyper-reality, why? Because right now, your experience of reality, mediated through the five sense organs, through the filter of the sixth, is limited by those sense organs. Your sense of sight. How far can you see? How deep into this color blue can you go? How, how deep into the touch? of the table can you feel? When you taste in this reality, your taste is limited by your taste buds, which we know as we get older seem to decline. When people have a lucid dream and then they email me and say, God, I could see every color. I could see every detail on the carpet. How was that? I say, because you weren't seeing through your eyes, you were seeing through your mind. If you eat chocolate cake in a lucid dream, something that my wife loves to do, she's a brilliant lucid dreamer, but because she has so many lucid dreams, sometimes she doesn't always use them for kind of psychological stuff, she just has a little bit of fun. And she says um, that the chocolate cake you taste in a lucid dream is amazing. And of course it is, because you're not tasting through your taste buds, there's no limit. You're tasting through your mind. In fact, interesting study, uh, Jane Gackenbach did very small scale, like about five women or something, but these five women in America were reporting that uh, they were losing weight through lucid dreaming. Um, she kind of questioned them on this, and what it was that eating chocolate cake in a lucid dream was so realistic that the brain was sending satiation signals to the gut saying, I'm full, so the next day they were less likely to engage in sugary snacks, leading to indirect weight loss. <laughs> That's nuts, right? Um, so lucid dreams feel really, really realistic. This is why lucid dream sex becomes so, um, so seductive, because the touch of the skin and internally generated mindgasm, you know, that's really something to experience. And in fact, that's how I got into lucid dream. Niall was asking me just outside, how do you get into lucid dreaming? And I think, <laughs> I think he was probably expecting me to say, oh, I had the visitation from a Buddhist lama and all this kind of stuff. No way. I was 15 years old. I'd been having lucid dreams when I was younger because I used to wet the bed a lot. And that used to kind of trigger me into lucidity when I was about seven or eight. Then I was 15, started smoking loads of weed, getting into kind of drugs, interest in the mind, Shaolin Kung Fu, this kind of stuff. And then lucid dreaming just seemed like this brilliant way to have access to a virtual reality simulation of my own psychology in which the rules of society didn't apply. So I would become lucid and I'd just practice skateboarding. I got pretty good at skateboarding, actually. Um, and the other thing I'd practice was the thing I wasn't doing in the waking state, which was having lots of sex. So I'd go into the lucid dream and, you know, showing my age, I'd probably go, Pamela Anderson, come to me, or something like that. And I'd, <laughs> I'd have all, millennials are like, Pamela who? Um, I'd have all this kind of sex and stuff. So I didn't get into lucid dreaming for any spiritual means at all. Um, but then when I was 17, Hence, uh, due to the drugs, I had a really bad uh, drugs, well, all drugs overdoses are, are bad, aren't they? But uh, a particularly bad drugs overdose um, and really traumatic nightmares after that. Now I would realize that they're probably PTSD nightmares without doubt. Four months of recurring nightmares every week at a specific time when the, when the trauma occurred. And I had been learning lucid dreaming up to that point just for the sex and skateboarding stuff, but I remember in one of the books by Stephen LeBurge, it said, 
you could use lucid dreaming to cure nightmares. And I remember I was doing my A-levels at the time. I was in the middle of a panic attack where I'd locked myself into a toilet cubicle at college. And I remember thinking, no, dude, this is something that's got to give. You have got to sort your mind out. And I remember thinking, well, if I go to the school nurse and tell her what's been going on, I'm going to get, like, I don't know, chucked out of college or, or the people in white coats will turn up. And I thought, well, look, can you heal it yourself? Can you use this lucid dreaming thing? Can you actually take it seriously for once? And I did. And it took about four lucid dreams to do it. The first three, I did become lucid in the recurring nightmare. But because it feels so realistic, it's easier said than done to say, stay in a nightmare. You know, it felt as real as this. So I had, just, I had to wake up. But the fourth one, I managed to get lucid, stay in the nightmare, and literally face my fear. And I know in the TED talk and everything, I say you should embrace it and show it love. I was 17, so I didn't. I just went, fuck off. I see you. I get it. But it was important. It was empowering. I was saying, I see that you're a dream. You are not psychosis. You are a dream. And I saw that. Oh, thank you. Is that a grape? Can I eat it? Thank you. Um, totally thrown me. It was a really good part of the story as well. Oh, I integrated my PTSD. Thanks, great. Yeah, so I did this thing. I, I turned to face the source of the nightmares, and the nightmares just stopped. Four months of, of traumatic dream nightmares stopped overnight. And we found similar studies now when I've been working with the veterans um, and the studies they've done on veteran communities and people with PTSD. It, okay, it can take months to train someone to lucid dream. Months. But once they have stabilized the lucid dreaming practice, it seems in many cases only one lucid dream becoming lucid and traumatic nightmare is needed to stop them happening again. So I'm not, it's not an overnight cure. It takes months. But once you have learned, if someone can get lucid in a post-traumatic stress nightmare once and stay in there fully, be fully present, it seems to end the nightmares pretty much overnight. So how do we learn to induce them? Um, I wrote some books about this, how to learn to induce them. Um, so this talk, I'll probably give some tips right at the end of, of some lucid dreaming things you can do. Uh, but if you do want to learn, then I've got this book and um, this one about it too. Oops. This one about it too. Um, does anyone want to learn to lucid dream? Yeah. First hand I saw. Okay. Thank you. Um, Essentially, most of the lucid dreaming techniques, so I teach the ones from Tibetan Buddhism. I lived in a Tibetan Buddhist center for almost eight years uh, and took refuge in the Tibetan Buddhist lineage when I was 19. So I've been pretty much steeped in that for the last decade or so. And a lot of the techniques I teach are within the Buddhist tradition, um, but a lot of them are the kind of Western ones too. And in fact, there is no Western in Tibetan techniques because the mind is the mind. The mind was the same mind a thousand years ago in Himalayan Tibet as it is now. They're essentially self-hypnosis techniques, um, certain visualization practices, uh, use of affirmation, use of the sleep cycle. Um, so there's a, um, for example, Stephen LaBerge's famous technique, the mild method, mnemonic-induced lucid dream. You actually find almost exactly the same technique in a 16th century dream yoga manual quoted by the Dalai Lama. So there are so many of the Western techniques that you do actually find in the ancient Tibetan tradition. So use whichever work for you. But my point with this is that you can teach yourself to lucid dream. It is a learnable skill. I'm not a natural lucid dreamer. I taught myself. I taught myself young, so it might have been slightly easier to learn when I was a teenager because you have very long REM periods when you're a teenager, which is why you should allow your teenagers to sleep long uh, if they can. Like school, school start times are terrible. 
really, really bad um, if you can allow your, your teenager to sleep a bit longer. Um, you, you can teach yourself how to do this. There will be some natural lucid dreamers in the audience, of course, um, but for those of you who think, I can't do it, I don't even remember my dreams, you absolutely can. I've worked with people with full dream blackout, and within maybe two, three months of training, they're having lucid dreams. So everyone can do this. It is a learnable skill. Um, okay, so we'll move a bit quickly through this. Uh, lucid dreaming was first verified by Western Science in 1975 at Hull University. The way they did it was, um, well, they had to prove something. The main argument against lucid dreaming was that um, how can you be sure they weren't just dreaming they had a lucid dream? Or how can you be sure they weren't having a micro-awakening, a very brief awakening in the night, then dropping back into the same dream, leading to the illusion that they were lucid in their dream? So they knew they had to prove several things. They had to prove they were still asleep. They hadn't had a micro-awakening. And they had to somehow work out how could you send a signal, a conscious signal, from the lucid dream state to the sleep laboratory without waking up? That was what they had to do. Insurmountable task, perhaps, until Keaton did it. He thought, okay, how can I send a signal from the lucid dream state? Maybe I can use fingers. So he put little uh, uh, switches on people's pinkies and said, when you're lucid in the dream and we're hooked up to the brain scanner and everything, move your pinky. Um, and for some people it worked, but because there's muscular paralysis, it's quite difficult to do. He thought, okay, well, what isn't paralyzed in the lucid dream state? The respiratory system, we breathe, and the eyes. So he tried stuff with breathing, um, but the real breakthrough was with eye movements. Essentially, he said to the lucid dreamer, uh, Alan Walsley, okay, we're going to hook you up to the EG equipment. When you're lucid in the dream, I want you to communicate with the outside world using your eyes. What they discovered was when someone's in a lucid dream, if they're like watching a tennis match, you'll see their eyes going because sometimes the eyeballs correspond to the physical activity you're watching or doing in the lucid dream. So he thought, okay, well, it can be like a kind of a Morse code. So once you get lucid, flick your eyes, like two to the left, two to the right, one up, something like that, you know, very distinct movements that couldn't be randomized. We'd then check these with an the eye movement graph, uh, and we would prove that you were in the dream state, you acknowledged the outside sleep laboratory, and went, I am going to send a signal to the sleep laboratory through my eyes. And they freaking did it, and here's the proof. These are the eye movements there. Um, when I, this is in the Science Museum in London. These, these are the kind of polygraph, not polygraph, the, the eye thing that he uses there. And for the book that I just gave to that lady, I interviewed uh, Dr. Hearn for this. And he was so sweet, I said, so what was it like when you actually got those uh, signals? And he said, you know in those films, Charlie, those space films, where you've got people, from, um, people in the NASA control room and they have a signal from another world? I said, yeah, he went, it was like that, but it was from the inner world. And then he leant back in his chair kind of wistfully and he said, but you know what? In those films, people always give each other high fives, don't they, when that happens? I had no one to high five. I was by myself. <laughs> and I leant over the table and I went, mate, high five. <laughs> and he said, 35 years late, but thank you. <laughs> He's a brilliant guy, brilliant hypnotherapist too, Keith Hearn. He's still working as a hypnotherapist. So we had this proof. So that's important to know. This isn't, um, isn't non-scientific. It has been a scientifically verified phenomena of dreaming sleep since uh, 1975. Then you had uh, Leberge a few years later at Stanford Sleep Laboratory. He did very similar experiments, but he got them peer-reviewed. He got them um, published in all the big journals. He, he made a kind of a, a, uh, 
he made a lot of noise about it. So a lot of people think that Stephen LeBerge was the first to get the results. Which I think it's important we, we acknowledge uh, Dr. Keith Hearn was actually the first. But then LeBerge did brilliant work afterwards. Then we have a resurgence in lucid dreaming, just skipping forward a few decades. We have a resurgence in lucid dreaming research around 2009, 2010, which is also around the time films like Inception came out. Uh, and that was a really good time to be involved in lucid dreaming. They define the, the definition more. So lucid dreaming is a hybrid state of consciousness with definable and measurable differences from the waking state and REM sleep. So now they start to use um, EEG machines, fMRI scanners, so they can see exactly what's happening to the brain when we get lucid. So 2012, <coughs> once lucidity, lucidity is intained, well, you can see what it says. I'll show you with my half a brain. I'm ready for any half the brain jokes you might have. Okay, basically. When you're in non-lucid dreaming, the back part of the brain, so the brain stem, the occipital lobe, lots of activation. Front part of the brain, frontal lobes, especially the prefrontal cortex, very little activation, almost entirely offline when you dream. Now, they believe that your sense of self, your sense of agency, your sense of I am having an experience are somehow located or activated within the prefrontal cortex. So, if that's offline when we dream, that explains how you can dream that you're a man if you're a woman. Or you can dream that you're back at school if you're an adult. You can dream you're other people. Um, you know, last year I had a dream I was the Queen of England. And I was, oh, such a vivid dream. I was her. She's a little bit shorter than me, a little bit wider. I was in a pink pastel dress. And there was a line of people in front of me and I was doing the thing where I was greeting them. Now, I wasn't lucid. Now, in that dream, I was the Queen. I had always been the Queen. Charlie didn't exist. The Charlie program wasn't switched on. But the very creative parts of the brain were, so I truly believed I was the queen. Then I woke up in the morning, the alarm went off. Oh, huh, God, what a weird dream. I was dreaming I was the queen. So I reached my phone, I write in my dream diary. Once I woke up, the prefrontal cortex switched back on. The alarm clock then switched that back on. So now the Charlie program came back online and I knew it was just a dream. But in most of our dreams, because that bit is switched off, we think our dreams are real. It's not a weird thing. We actually think our dreams are real until we wake up and realize it was just a dream. Now, in a lucid dream, the same process occurs, but we stay asleep. So the back part of the brain, brainstem, occipital lobe, very activated, lots of uh, dreaming happening here. Front part of the brain switched off, but because you've done your lucid dreaming training, or you've come to a workshop, or you've just had a spontaneous lucid dream, the front part of the brain switches on, and you see this in the brain scanner. In the fMRI scan, you see specifically the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex become activated very quickly. And then they wake someone up straight afterwards, and they say, oh my god, I just had a lucid dream, did you get it? So they have a correlation between the subjective experience of lucidity and the activation of certain brain networks. So now we absolutely know it's for real. And the cool thing about that is that it led to a lot of scientific research into lucid dreaming because they realized that once the prefrontal cortex is activated, a phenomenon known as neuroplasticity becomes engaged. Now, I'm sure we've all heard this before, right? Neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more we use certain brain networks, the uh, more blood flow they get, the deeper the grooves come into the brain. It's the biological basis of habit, essentially. Now, in a non-lucid dream, because the prefrontal cortex is disengaged, there's very little neuroplasticity occurring. But once the prefrontal cortex becomes activated, as it does with full lucidity, the brain lays down neural pathways in exactly the same way as if you are awake. The brain, in the lucid state, doesn't think you're lucid dreaming. 
It thinks you're awake and will start to affect your brain chemistry as if you were doing it really, as if you were awake. So they discovered through lucid dreaming, you can actually get better at stuff. You can train in sports and get better at sports in the waking state. Motor skills improvement. So one of the studies they did was on squats. Um, I'm going to tell you some amazing stuff you can do in the lucid dream. You can meet your inner child. You can call out to meet God. You can ask, what is my highest purpose? You can integrate past trauma. You can do your meditation practice. All these amazing things. But these German athletes who are called into this study, out of all the things they could have done after their weeks and months of training, they're allowed to do one thing once they get lucid. Squats. They check how many squats they can do in the daytime, go into the lucid dream, practice doing squats, see how many you can do, check them the next day, long story short, they got better. They increased their personal best. Same studies using like a, a press ups and stuff like that. Um, and one of the last studies, oh, here you go. So 1990, the studies began, they were just kind of anecdotal studies. 2011, lucid dreams have a great potential to be used by athletes as a training method. That 2008 one, I was part of that. That was a group of martial artists who could lucid dream. We had to go into the lucid dream state and practice a very specific kick sequence and then see if we could do it better the next day in the waking state. 80.3% reported waking state increase in martial arts performance. I embarrassingly was part of the 20% who didn't get any better, uh, which is a bit embarrassing, uh, but there's a... There's a cool picture of me, so that makes me feel better. Um, Tomorrow's World. Do you remember Tomorrow's World? The older people will. Maybe the younger people won't. Tomorrow's World is a brilliant show where they talk about, you know, kind of futurism, really. It was probably about futurism. And they, they brought back Tomorrow's World, but now it's a kind of an online hub. And for one of their first episodes, they did one about lucid dreaming. So this is uh, uh, the one about lucid dreaming. Oh, sorry, lucid dreaming and martial arts training. <coughs> In fact, let me share a story that I haven't shared before. Um, I have a slight... Uh, limp at the moment because I'm training for a kickboxing competition that's coming up uh, at the end of April. Uh, three nights ago, I found uh, online one of the videos of the guy that I'm fighting in the kickboxing competition, and he looks, he looks quite tasty. So I had a little bit of anxiety. Like, oh, God, he actually looks quite good. So I went to sleep with this anxiety, and out of all the things I teach in my books, I couldn't get to sleep. I kept on thinking, oh, well, he's southpaw, I should do this, I should do that, I could kick, I could do that. Uh, so I couldn't really get to sleep. Eventually, I did get to sleep, and because of the anxiety, I became lucid. A little bit of anxiety can actually help with lucid dreaming. I had a bit of a nightmare uh, that, uh, that I was kind of scared about the fight. The nightmare, the fear, got me lucid, and I was like, oh, I'm dreaming. And then I saw in front of me this really big, scary-looking, very tall Japanese like warrior guy and I was lucid, and I realized, I went, you're it, aren't you? And he went, yes. And he, what he was, was he was the personification of my fear of the fight. And I said, you're the fear. And he went, yes. And I was like, oh my God. You can actually meet the personification, not only of your shadow, but of specific fears. Now, the guy I'm fighting isn't a big Japanese guy, but I guess he was a kind of archetypal representation of the Japanese warrior style. Um, and then I moved to him, and I embraced him. Anytime you're in a lucid dream, if you remember one thing from this talk, remember this. Hug everything in your lucid dream. Really. <laughs> if you accept that everything in the lucid dream, or at least 99.9% .9 of everything in the lucid dream, is a three-dimensional projection of your own psychology, and you don't know what to do, show it love. Literally. Run around, hug everything, show it love, hug the walls, hug the floor, hug the people, call out affirmations of love. You're going to feel amazing the next day. It's literally an internal hug. So I go up to him and I embrace him. And I did have a little moment of thinking, um, 
strangely for me, I thought, wait, should I be hugging? Of course you should be hugging him. He's your fear. Show him love. Fear is a part that is split off from ourselves. Fear is created by separation. If I move into non-separate love for this being, the fear will be dissolved. So I hug him, and then I release the hug, and he's just sitting there like this, kind of like a big dog. And I went, oh, okay, dude, can we actually train for the fight now? And he went, yes. And I went, okay, can we stretch? And he took my foot and uh, put it on his shoulder, which is probably how high I can stretch. And then I went, it's a dream. And he went, Vroom. and I could stretch my leg all the way up to the top. And then he had his hands out and we were, we were doing kind of a bag training together. And I was fully conscious, knowing that I was reprogramming this neural pathway, that I wouldn't be scared about the fight anymore and stuff. And I'm not. The fear's really gone. I'm really looking forward to the fight now coming up. So you can use it to, uh, to train for stuff and get better. Um, <coughs> that may not seem like a, such a big deal. Like, okay, so you can get better at squats, you can get it better at martial arts, all this stuff, so what? Well, what if you train for other things? What if you train your kindness? What if you train being the person you know you wish you could be, if you could only move beyond the barriers of fear that stop you being your fullest potential? Imagine if you could use the lucid dream to practice changing bodies. My friend Maxwell Hunter, who is a uh, trans man uh, who was born gender assigned female, um, check him out, his um, YouTube channel called Ra Ra Rabbit, R-A-R-A Rabbit. And before he transitioned and had the operation to transition, he would go into the lucid dream state and practice being in the body that he wished he was born into. So he would become lucid in female form because that's what he was identified with at the time. But in the lucid dream, he would stand in front of a mirror or just through the power of mind, transform himself into the male body and just stand there and just feel, okay, yeah, this feels right. I don't feel anxious anymore. I feel like I'm in the right place. And then transform himself back into a female. Oh, that low level anxiety. This isn't the body I feel I should be in. Transform yourself back. You know, amazing stuff you can do. Now, I've got no proof that that was also helping his kind of neural pathways prepare for the huge psychological shift into gender transition, but who knows, it could have helped. Another guy I once worked with, a simple story, he didn't like, um, uh, didn't like touching people's hands, he was scared about germs, that form of ADHD. Yeah? OCD, sorry, yes, OCD. Um, so he didn't like uh, germs, touching people's hands, that kind of thing. So he said, oh, in my lucid dream, because it's like a really deep state of hypnosis, and because you said that anything you can treat through hypnotherapy, you can treat through lucid dreaming, which is true, should I go into the lucid dream and say, I get rid of my OCD, I get rid of my OCD? No, do not go in there and get rid of anything. You want to embrace, you want to integrate, you don't want to separate from. So I said, what could be the best thing is actually to go in your lucid dream and just, just touch people, just shake their hands, knowing that they're part of you, knowing that there are no germs in the lucid dream, that actually you're talking to your friends here. You don't need to wash your hands after this. Now, I lost contact with him. I don't know if that helped, but I'm pretty sure that could be a very helpful way for exploring this. It's like life rehearsal. You know, you can practice for this thing. When I was having problems with my dad, and I just, I didn't have the courage to have the conversation I needed to have with my dad when he was breaking up with my mum. But I would go into the lucid dream and I would practice. I'd practice saying what needed to be said. So then eventually, when I had the courage to speak to my dad, it was like I'd had a rehearsal. And I wasn't so triggered by his replies because I could kind of, I kind of practice working with them. So I can be very practical too. Lucid dreaming for nightmare treatment, we've touched on this already. Um, I mean, you can, you can read this. The studies have been very, very strong. Lucid dreaming, out of all the things that I um, looked at on my Winston Churchill scholarship, 
which was I had to research in America and Canada best practice in mindfulness-based approaches to PTSD treatment. Um, lucid dreaming was not the most accessible. Out of all of them, it was probably the hardest to learn and the hardest to teach to offer to large-scale groups of people. And yet, it was one of the most powerful interventions. If people could learn lucid dreaming and could become lucid in PTSD nightmares, it was a very high success rate for reduction of nightmares. But lucid dreaming isn't so easy to, to, to learn quickly. So I don't think kind of mainstream application um, is that viable. Um, but this year I'm teaching, running for the first time CPD training for therapists. Um, so that psychotherapists, not to teach them to become lucid dreaming teachers, but to teach them lucid dreaming skills with which to add to their offering to their clients. So if a client comes in presenting with nightmares, you might say, okay, we could try hypnotherapy and also you could try this lucid dream training between now and the next week. You know? So I'm really excited about that for healthcare professionals and psychotherapists um, learning to offer lucid dreaming. This is my teacher, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche. Uh, he's the abbot of Samaling Monastery in Scotland. <coughs> and he's the guy who authorized me to teach lucid dreaming. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, you, you can't really just uh, like decide to teach. You have to be authorized to teach. Um, and I remember when in 2008, so I was 25, and he gave me this authorization to teach, which was a very strange thing uh, to occur at that age to, to me. And I remember in the kind of interview thing where you're sitting with him, I said, are you sure this is a good idea? Because I'm 25 and I make my living putting on breakdancing events in Brixton. Like, this is, are you sure this is a good idea? So he gave me this authorization to teach in Buddhist temples and stuff. And he said in this wonderful broken Tibetan English, Charlie, some people have a lot of knowledge. And I literally thought he was talking about me. I was so arrogant. I went, well, I've read all the books. So yes, yes. And he went, no, 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 you have no knowledge. I said, oh. <laughs> but you, you can do this practice. This is good. And that was it. And now 10 years down, it's the same. I don't have any knowledge, I'm not a professor, I don't have a degree in psychology, anything like that. But I've got almost 20 years of doing this practice um, and 10 years of teaching it to other people. And it seems to have benefited them and me to some degree. And I love it. I never, it never gets old. Like that dream three days ago, you know, embracing the fear of the kickboxing fight, I just thought I'd, I'd never thought you could work with such specific fears. I'd worked with kind of certain shadows, but such specific fears you can meet in your lucid dream, it just took it to another level. So I don't think this stuff will ever get old. I don't think it'll ever get boring. In fact, I think we're barely scratching the surface. This guy, Maxwell Hunter, he's also been working with people with mental health issues, seeing if you can meet your voices in the lucid dream state in personified form and embrace them and ask them what they want. Uh, that's, that could really, who knows, but that could be a, a big, big intervention in mental health. This is a funny study. Lucid dreamers have bigger brains, apparently. I love this. Uh, I have no idea whether it's true, but apparently I did these studies uh, and they found that because lucid dreaming increases blood flow to these certain parts of the brain, people who have loads of lucid dreams, that part of the brain is actually bigger, which is kind of cool. That's a good reason to have a lucid dream, right? Okay, the main bit, psychological benefits. We are going to have a break in about 10 minutes for a, a pee break, apparently, and then we'll continue afterwards. So integration of psychological trauma. Again, we've touched on this before, but let's be very specific and let's look at a case study here. So the lucid dream state is at its lowest level, most baseline level, a three-dimensional virtual reality simulation of your own psychology. When you walk around a lucid dream, you are literally walking around a three-dimensional projection of your own mind. 
everything is you. I say 99.9% of everything is you because personally, off record, I believe there's a crucial 0.1% that is not us, which is made up of the collective unconscious or made up of uh, certain aspects which are beyond the sense of self. But let's say 99.9% is you. So because you're inside your own psychology, you can make very powerful changes to your psychology while you sleep. How will you know if those psychological changes have worked? There will be a visceral experiential knowledge of it the next day. So let's say you are scared of spiders. Any arachnophobes in here? Wow, there used to be loads more. No one's scared of spiders anymore. Okay. Um, Let's say you're scared of spiders. In a similar way to cognitive behavioral therapy, you could use lucid dreaming to engage minimum exposure, maximum, and medium exposure, maximum exposure. For example, becoming lucid, going, all oh, right, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. What did I want to do? So you make a plan. Don't go in the lucid dream blind. There's so much to do in the lucid dream state that unless you go in with a plan, you can easily get distracted. Or just for a lot of people, their first lucid dream is like this. I'm lucid. Oh, my God. God it's so real. Boom. And you wake up. Like... Don't, I mean, it happens, right? But go in with a plan. People say, why are my lucid dreams so short? I say, because you try to do so little. The lucid dream space itself, if we think, like Jung said, the conscious unconscious, it doesn't like tourists, it like travelers. So if you go and there's a tourist, I'm lucid, oh, cool. Oh, wow. The dreamer, that kind of consciousness within the dream is going, dude, I've been doing this for a lot longer than you've been getting lucid. You're bringing me nothing out. But if you get lucid, and as soon as you're lucid, you go, childhood trauma, come to me, I'm ready to integrate you. The dreamer's like, whoa, okay, let him hang out. This guy, this guy means business, yeah? Really, you can test this stuff. For the first few years, I was teaching the opposite. I was saying, oh, in your first few lucid dreams, just take it easy, don't do too much, um, just kind of look around. And people are having really short lucid dreams. And then I realized I'm teaching the wrong thing here. Aim high, go in really big. And actually, there's something in the dream that kind of respects that and will open up the lucid dream to allow that healing to occur. So going with a plan. Uh, the example I'll share here is my friend Kerry. <clears throat> she knew that her relationships with men had been detrimentally affected by um, some, not, uh, some kind of abuse that had happened, basically, when she was a kid um, involving men. And she wanted to use the lucid dream state to try and integrate this trauma. Now, she had an idea that the trauma might manifest as kind of a cloud of red smoke or as a monster or something like that. Because if I asked you to draw what your trauma looks like, whatever you draw on the paper is probably how it might appear in your lucid dream. It's based on your imagination, right? So she was expecting something like that. But something very different happened. She became lucid. And with this dream plan to integrate the, the childhood trauma stuff, the abuse stuff. <clears throat> and when she was lucid, even before she could call for it, it appeared. And she said to me, Charlie, I would have rather it was a monster. Because what appeared was actually the dude, the guy. And remember how real I said it feels. It looks as real as, as the person sitting next to you now. And she said to see him again. To see him again, so real. She was like, okay, no, okay. Just remember, I'm dreaming, I'm safe. Where is my body? My body's in my bed in a locked bedroom, probably the safest place it can be in a 24-hour period. Where am I now? I'm inside a virtual reality simulation of my mind. I cannot die in this place, I cannot be injured in this place. 
This place was designed for psychological integration. The REM dreaming state was designed biologically to integrate both memory and trauma in the evolution of the brain. So I'm in a space that's designed for this. I'm safe. So she walks towards him. And she remembers the stuff that I was talking about embracing. You know, if you want to fly in a lucid dream, you do this, right? You do the symbol of flight. Well, who does this? How many uh, Superman flyers do we have in their dreams? Superman flyers? Uh, how many swim flyers? Like this thing. Yeah, always a swim flyers. Does anyone do the bounce thing? Where you're like, boing, boing. Any bounces? Couple, a few bounces? Okay, yeah. Everyone's got their own method, right? I do the Superman thing. So I'm in a dream. I want to fly a lucid dream. Put my hand up like Superman. It's like a symbol. It's the kind of symbol of, of, of flight, right? So if you want to show that you're loving something, you're integrating, use the symbol, the universal symbol of acceptance. So I say the hug is the best. Even better than saying, I love you, I accept you, I integrate you. Literally just show it, hug it. So <clears throat> she moves up to this guy, knowing that she's dreaming still, totally lucid, and she embraces him. And she said she could smell him. Like, that's what got to her. She's like, the smell, dude. But she's remembering, okay, this is just my mind, this is just the trauma, it's, it's not real, it's just a dream. And she's hugging him, and he starts to shrink. And he's shrinking, he's shrinking, and then he goes, boom. And this abuser has transformed. And she looks down, and there's a baby like wrapped in a white blanket. And she bends down and picks up this baby. And she's holding the baby in her arms and she said, that's when the healing began. Because I could see that he was a baby once. He wasn't born an abuser, he wasn't born a monster. He was born innocent. And once I could see that, I could start to open up to forgiveness. And she's holding this baby in her arms and she starts chanting this Buddhist mantra to her, Om Mani Pemahong, Om Mani Pemahong, Om Mani Pemahong. And then she said this big um, rush of air moved through the dream, like someone had opened a door on a cold day, and, it went, and then she woke up. I have no evidence for this, but I'm almost certain within the Buddhist tradition would agree with this, that that rush of air was a release of chi, was prana. Because in this tradition, we believe that trauma gets kind of stuck in your energy systems and can kind of clog up your pranic flow. So when you release a trauma, you can often have this kind of, I think in the dream it was that. No evidence for that, just a hunch, but I think that was her chi being released. <clears throat> so she woke up, she had a very visceral response to this. She emailed me about it to tell me. But she said actually it was a few weeks later that she saw the real effects of the lucid dream. She saw that her relationship with her dad was changing. Now she hadn't spoken to her dad for a couple of months at this time. Her dad was nothing to do with the abuse. She says, be very clear about that. But because of what had happened, all of her relationships with men were affected, including that with her dad. She could never quite connect. They were always having these fallouts. But she said since that lucid dream, she felt closer to her dad. They reconnected. And the last email she sent was saying, um, I taught my dad the mantra, and now we sing it together. And that has changed her relationship with men, and um, she's in a happy relationship now. So, just one example, but you can work very directly with specific psychological trauma through the lucid dream state. Now, those who may be worried about re-traumatization, go back to something I mentioned right in the middle of that story. If you look at how REM sleep developed in mammals, and especially in, the neo in um, uh, us, in humans, there's a theory that the reason we came to be top predators on this planet by Antti Ravonzo, a Finnish uh, neuroscientist, is not only our ability to dream vividly, but specifically our ability to have nightmares. Back in the day, right, cavemen and cavewomen time, 
If you could be having nightmares about lions, tigers, and bears, you are less likely to be eaten by them the next day compared to the dude down the road who didn't have that nightmare. Because nightmares, we rehearse our survival systems. If you're spending all night dreaming about saber-toothed tiger and one dream you fight it, the other dream you climb up a tree, the other dream you get eaten by it, the next day you're less likely to be killed by the saber-toothed tiger because you've rehearsed these survival mechanisms. So because of that, we now know that dreams are not only a place for reconsolidation of memory. We know this in all the rat studies. They did rats finding cheese in a maze, put a little brain scanner on a, on a rat. I don't know how you do that, apparently, but it must be tiny. Um, you check what it's dreaming about. The rats who are dreaming about finding the cheese in the maze, the next day they find the cheese quicker, stuff like that. Um, so we know that dreaming is about reconsolidation of memory. We also know it's about integration of trauma, simply because back in the day, cavemen, cavewomen times, most memories were traumatic. Traumatic. Life was tough, guys. Like people were whacking you over the head, like very high, you know, people were living to 20, that was like old age. Life was tough. So the REM dreaming sleep state was designed to integrate trauma. This is why if you become lucid and you call out for a traumatic event, so that's our break. No, we're done. We'll carry on. Um, if you call out for a traumatic event or you call out to integrate the trauma, you're actually less likely to be re-traumatized in the lucid dream state than even possibly in waking state one-on-one -on -one therapy, simply because the crucible of the dream state was designed to integrate trauma. If you go into a lucid dream and you call out for something you are not ready for, you simply wake up. Anyone who's had a nightmare and woken up with a shock knows that. So actually there's like a safety valve in the dream state. So I believe, actually, it's possibly a safer place to look at trauma, maybe in some cases, than waking state therapy. Who knows? But we know at least the possibility for re-traumatization in lucid dream is very, very low when compared with waking state therapy. So I would say go in there and try. And if it's too big, the dream will just do nothing. There seems to be literally a safety mechanism. The first time I saw it, I tried to go to Buddhist heaven. Um, well, you guys know, there is no such thing as Buddhist heaven, but we have these things called pure lands, which are like these nirvanic mind states. And one of them is called Dewa Chen. So I thought, well, in the lucid dream state, what if I call out to go to Dewa Chen, to like go to nirvana? So I become lucid and I go, Dewa Chen, now! Take me to Dewa Chen! Nothing happens. Call out a second time, Dewa Chen, take me to Dewa Chen, this is my dream! Nothing happens. Third time, take me to Dewa Chen, take me to nirvana! This woman walks in with a clipboard. <laughs> and she go, walks up to me and goes, Dewa Chen, nah, you're not ready for that. And I wake up. <laughs> Nuts. It was like some part of me knew that at 25 years old, I was not ready to experience Nirvana. It would have blown my mind. It could have given me psychosis. I don't know. But just before the break, about seven years later, so this was about three years ago, I did the same dream plan again, and the woman didn't turn up. And that is without doubt the most powerful lucid dream I've ever had, because I know that it's real. And on that bombshell. <laughs> Let's have a five minute break, guys. We'll be back in five. Thank you. This book is based on the Jungian concept of the shadow. So it's about shadow integration. Um, some of it is through lucid dreaming, but 70% of this book is not lucid dreaming. It's about waking state shadow integration practices from Tibetan Buddhism, Mexican shamanism, and Jungian psychology. And the other one, the one I gave to the lady who is there, is um, like a kind of a dummy's guide to lucid dreaming. 
So if you're not interested in the Buddhisty stuff, but just want a quick start guide, then that one. Also, by the books, there's a sign-up form for my email list. So if you want to keep updated about workshops and stuff, then please put your name down. <coughs> or you can just find me. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'd make a very bad spy. Um, if you're interested in the workshops, uh, the workshops are kind of, you know, usually weekends where I teach you the techniques for how to lucid dream. Um, the retreats are slightly different. The retreats are like kind of lucid dreaming boot camp. They're these four-day sleepovers where during the day we're learning lucid dreaming, doing meditation, certain yogic practices, all this kind of stuff. But the main event is the nighttime. The nighttime is optional, but if you take the option, you will go to bed at about 10.30 until 3.30 in your own room and just sleep. Then at 3.30 you will wake up and you will move into the sacred sleeping area along with maybe 40 other people where you have bed number two set up. So you have two beds. And once you're in bed number two, you hand over to me and I become your human alarm clock. And I guide you back into the sleep state. Uh, and then an hour and a half later, I wake you up with Tibetan bowls, bring you back out, get you to write down your experience, then give you another technique, guide you back in. And we do that four times a night. Essentially, if you fall asleep once and wake up once in the morning, you've got one chance. Some crazy guy wakes you up four times a night, you've just quadrupled your chances of success. Now, you actually get loads of sleep on those retreats. You get about 10 hours every 24-hour period, but it's just broken up. Um, for some people, that sounds like a nightmare. Other people, it's a dream, whatever. Um, you don't have to do the nighttime practices, though. You could choose to stay in your room and just do the practice yourself. <coughs> Again, if you're interested, please do give me your email. So um, we have looked at integration of psychological trauma, creative problem solving. What example shall we use? Oh, my friend Nina. This is a cool one. Um, when I say friends, it's because people become friends once they share your case studies with them. Uh, but Nina is actually uh, a real friend. In fact, my wife will be her bridesmaid in a few weeks' time. Nina was a breakdance teacher at Royal Academy of Dance, as my wife was. Um, she felt that she was stuck um, in her career <coughs> and wanted to use the lucid dream state to ask about career path. So she talked to me about a dream plan. And I said, yeah, you could call out in the lucid dream, what should I do in my career? Or what are the next steps in life or something like that? So she made a dream plan. Uh, the books tell you how to do it. You kind of draw out. Uh, it's like a vision board for what you want to do in your next lucid dream. And she became lucid, and she calls out to the dream, <clears throat> what should I do career-wise? So she's in, in the lucid dream. What should I do career-wise? As soon as she calls it out, a window appears. And through the window, she sees herself sitting on the floor, surrounded by little toddlers reading with like piles of books. That was the image. And then she wakes up. I think, okay, what does that mean? I should be like a kindergarten teacher or something like that. I'm not trained in that. How do I do it? Blah, blah, blah. So she kind of ignores the dream. Now, here's the cool thing. If you ignore the lucid dream, that conscious unconscious will find a way to communicate in other ways. And Nina had some crazy synchronicities. It was like everywhere she looked, there was stuff about kindergarten teachers and stuff like that. Anyway, the final one was, uh, you know those kind of notice boards, you have kind of town notice boards things. There was one that came up for a teaching assistant job at the local primary school um, that were looking for applicants. Now, it wasn't kindergarten, it was primary. But she thought, well, I'll apply anyway. You know, it's kind of following the dream. Why not? I, I'm looking for a new job. So she applies. <clears throat> the night before the primary school job interview, she goes to sleep with a little bit of anxiety, a bit like my kickboxing thing. A little bit of anxiety can actually give you lucid dreams, so it's not so bad. So she became lucid again. This time in the lucid dream, she calls out to the unconscious mind. By the way, if you want to ask a question in lucid dream, don't ask the characters. The dream characters represent very specific and minimized aspects of your psychology. 
For example, if you ask an um, elderly Japanese woman, uh, what should I do career-wise, the answer that she gives will be based on your internal and probably unconscious expectations, prejudices, assumptions based on femininity, Japanese-ness, and elderliness. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of very specific thing. So if you had a question to ask, call out to the sky. Call out to the dreamer itself, the big dream. So she calls out to the dream. Um, oh, will I get the job? <laughs> will I get the job tomorrow? And in the sky, the stars spell out Y-E-S. How cool is that? And then, and then she goes, oh, well, will you help me tomorrow? And she starts to wake up. It's like, will you help me tomorrow? Will you help me tomorrow? And it says millions. Yes, millions. I don't know. Something like that. So she wakes up. He's, oh, the dream's going to help me millions. It said, yes, I'm going to get the job. This is so cool. So she goes into the interview full of um, you know, confidence. She goes in. She'd never even had the interview. She walked in. They went, oh, we're so sorry. We've just given it to the uh, lady before you. <laughs> So she's walking out there thinking, what the hell, the lucid dream, I had two of them, what's going on, all the synchronicities. Just as she's walking out, they go, oh, there is another post. It's not at this school, it's at our local kindergarten. They're looking for a, a teaching assistant. <laughs> Insane. She takes that job, she gets the job, and she's now still in teaching, actually. She's moved up, she is now a primary school teacher, but that's nuts, right? She literally asked the dream what to do. It gave her an image of a kindergarten teacher, and within a few months, she had left a job and was doing that work. So you can ask very specific questions. Creative problem solving. Now, where is this coming from? <coughs> some people think some sort of divine source or God or maybe. But what about this? Imagine if every book that you've ever read has been stored in your mind. Every talk you've ever been to, every lecture, every bit of education you've ever been educated on, every good piece of advice you've ever been given was stored in the huge hard drive of the unconscious mind. Now, we know from hypnosis studies using fMRI that essentially the unconscious mind doesn't forget. They did studies where people could go back and find the um, exact wallpaper on their crib wall when they were pre-verbal in hypnosis in these brain scanners. So we're pretty sure that that's how it works. Now, in the lucid dream, just like in hypnosis, you get access to that library of knowledge, that, li that huge data storage system that is the unconscious mind. It could be past lives. It could be past lives. As a, as a Buddhist, I would open up to that too, but that's going to be a huge rabbit hole. But thank you, it could be past lives. Um, so, um, imagine if you had access to that data. You might call it God. It might be like in that film Lucy, you know, where she has full access to the unconscious mind, she gains kind of divine capacity. And she makes it clear, like, she isn't becoming God. It's that if we could fully embody our humanity, if we could fully use our full, our, our highest potential, we might seem like God. So I think often when you get this advice in lucid dreams, it could be that you're kind of meeting your higher self, that the advice is coming from a place of wisdom that seems so great that we can't really accept it as ourself, but sometimes it is just ourselves. Um, shadow integration. <coughs> so that's what this um, book is about. This is my latest book. It came out a year and a bit ago. Um, so the shadow is a term popularized by Carl Jung in the West. Oh, he, he popularized it in the West. Uh, and his definition of the shadow was aspects of the unconscious mind which we have rejected, denied, or disowned. He referred to the shadow as the dark side of the human psyche. And yet, not dark meaning bad, evil, or malign, 
dark meaning yet to be illuminated. So it wasn't dark because it was bad, it was dark because it was in the shadows. It hadn't had the light of conscious awareness to illuminate it. So the shadow is essentially anything that you hide from yourself or others. So if you think, okay, what do I hide from myself or others? Okay, I hide my, uh, my prejudices, I hide my irritability, I hide my um, internet search history. <laughs> you know, I hide all my dirty secrets, I hide this stuff. So many people think the shadow is simply made up of your fears, your shame, and your trauma. Yeah, but there's also an aspect sometimes referred to as the golden shadow. Does anybody here hide their esoteric side from their friends or family for fear of being labeled too woo-woo? golden shadow. You hide it and yet you know it is overtly beneficial. Does anyone here have a secret talent? Like maybe they love to sing or they love to, to do art and creativity, but there's no outlet. They hide it from their friends. They don't tell their friends they love to dance or sing or whatever it is. That's golden shadow. In fact, Carl Jung clearly said 90% of the shadow is pure gold. That was actually how the post-Jungians started using that term, golden shadow. Jung never used it himself. So shadow integration is, through lucid dreaming, is a way of becoming lucid and literally calling out to meet your shadow. Now, when I first talked to Jungian psychiatrists about this, Jungian psychologists about this, it took a while to translate. They said, are you literally telling me that you can become lucid and call out, shadow, come to me? And a personification of your internal shadow will appear in three-dimensional form and you can dialogue with it. And I was like, yes exactly that and they went well one of them said this could change everything and i think it can in the lucid dream you can literally call out to meet your shadow now if you become lucid and you call out to meet your shadow you better put your seatbelt on because imagine the embodiments of all of your fear your shame but also your highest potential how powerful that would be but if you can call out to meet it and you can embrace it with love that can have powerful integrative effects. So how does that work? Literally becoming lucid and calling out shadow come to me or teenage shadow come to me. You can be that specific. Uh, in fact, I'll share the teenage shadow one. Um, so my childhood was like really happy, no major trauma. My teenage years, I really effed myself up. I was sexualized too young. I got into drugs, all this kind of stuff. Um, so when I looked, when I first got into shadow work, I thought, Actually, rather than meeting the shadow itself, let me meet this specific part, the teenage shadow. And the first time I did it was really scary. I became lucid and I called out, teenage shadow, come to me. And very often when I'd called out for the shadow in a lucid dream before, it appears symbolically. Um, it's appeared as like a really big gangster with a scar on his face. Um, it's appeared as like a weird sexualized transvestite. Um, it's appeared as a big monster, three-headed monsters, who I talk about in the TED talk and stuff. So I thought it would probably be symbolic, but it wasn't. I called out of a teenage shadow. What appeared was way scary. It was me at 17 years old. And it was this guy who had been in the gym, and he was really muscly, and he had his ponytail and his tattoos out, and he was all sweaty. And he came into the dream, and he just went, who the fuck are you? And I was so scared I woke up. So there I am, lying in bed, thinking, okay, this is unintegrated. I need to go back. And this is the cool thing with lucid dreaming. You can go back to the same place. So the next night, I was on retreat, so all the retreatants were expecting me to get lucid, so I did. I became lucid, I called out for the teenage shadow, but this time it didn't appear as that part of me that was so aggressive. It appeared as a really small guy, actually. He was, like, really short, and it was the first time ever in a dream the shadows hugged me. It came to me and just, it had his arms around my waist, and I was just stroking his head, and I was like, oh, it's all right, mate. It's all right, mate. I love you. I love you. It's, it's, it's all right. 
I don't know whether it did anything. I know it made me feel really good. I know it made me have less shame. I know it made me stop fearing that sometime at a workshop someone would turn up who knew me at college and I'd be so ashamed at who I was. I know that helped. Anyone into shadow integration? That was the first hand I saw. Can you hand this back to this lady? Sure. Thank you. I'm just going to do questions at the end, if that's all right. Oh, I forgot to start the timer. Uh, how long have I got left? Niall? No, but I've got to leave time for questions. Oh, okay. Cool, let me just set this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give us 15 minutes. Um, so you can do shadow integration stuff, moving on limiting beliefs. Um, let's kind of skip through. Let's use the example of my friend Maxwell for that, moving beyond limited beliefs, moving into the transition into being a trans man. Um, inner child work, this is a great one. Again, you can, the unique thing about lucid dreaming from a psychological perspective is this. You can meet personifications of aspects of your own psychology. That's the like kicker of this whole talk. You might think, how is this not just the same as hypnotherapy? How is this not just the same as shamanic journeying? How is this not just the same as uh, using imaginal art therapy work? All of those are great, but you're very unlikely to actually have a three-dimensional solid personification of an embodiment of an aspect of your psychology in front of you in a shamanic journey or in a hypnosis session or in an art therapy session. But in a lucid dream, they are literally 3D. You can touch them. You can put your hand on their heart and their heart will be beating. They are personifications of you. The inner child work, um, I was quite late to this because as I said, I had a really happy childhood, but I tried it because so many people at my workshops had been doing it and having really big breakthroughs. So I thought, okay, I should do it too. So I became lucid and again, I had my plan. I became lucid, inner child, come to me. Inner child, come to me. And in the distance, I saw this really weird, it looked like a little dwarf, and it was waddling like this. And I became a bit scared. In the dream, you can start, in the lucid dream, you can start interpreting the dream while you're in it. So I start interpreting it, oh my God, maybe I was traumatized. Why this little weird dwarf coming towards me? <laughs> but then he came into the light, and it was me at five years old from a very specific photo. You can find this photo on my Facebook page. It's me in little green Speedos wearing flippers on my feet. That's why he was waddling. It was me from the photo. And I was like, oh my God, it's little Charlie from that poolside in Morocco. And I hadn't actually thought, what do you do when you meet your inner child? And I see him and he's just there waddling up to me. And I was like, you know, hug. If you forget what to do, just hug. So I bend down and I embrace him like this. And he felt so skinny. I remember thinking, like, oh, your little weedy arms, man. And I was embracing him like that, and he felt so skinny, and I thought, you get so much bigger. And then he whispered something in my ear that just I wasn't ready for. He went, what happens? And I was like, whoa. He's asking what happens in life. And I stepped back, and I was like, oh, like you grow up. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this is someone who didn't have a lot of childhood trauma, right? And it had a big emotional impact. Even when I tell the story, I go back into that emotion. Imagine if you've got some childhood trauma and you can meet your inner child and embrace them. It's such powerful stuff. And it is so overlooked by mainstream psychology at the moment. But by the time I enter the Bardo in this life, I will make it my mission to bring this into mainstream psychology. 
because I've seen it change people's lives. It's not the most accessible. It's not the easiest technique. It takes months to practice. But I've seen people who can do it make changes to their psychology and integration of trauma that could take months of waking state therapy. So I'm not saying it's better. Lucid dreaming is no better than hypnotherapy or, or uh, psychodynamics or karuna therapy or, or any of these brilliant modalities. But it is very, very powerful. It could take, oh, years of therapy. There you go. Yeah, who knows? Um, so part of doing the CPD training this year for therapists is so that when someone comes to me and they present with a problem that's outside of beyond me, and I say, dude, I don't have a degree in psychology. I, I, I can't help with that. I can say, oh, but I do know a psychotherapist in London who's done my lucid dream training, or I do know an integrative holistic therapist who's done the lucid dream training. You know, there's a, a GP from Denmark who's coming over to do the six-day training. And on the uh, form, you have to fill in of why you want to learn lucid dreaming as a therapist. She put, so when a client presents to me with nightmares, I can give them two offers, not one. As in, rather than just meds, she can say, you could have meds, or you could try these lucid dreaming techniques. And I was like, yes, that's why I'm doing this training. So if you do anyone who's a therapist who'd like to do this, um, you do have to have completed your level one certification with me first, which sounds bigger than it is. Basically means you need to have done a work, weekend workshop with me, four day sleepover retreat, seven week online course, and have had five lucid dreams. So you've tasted the chocolate at least five times and be a qualified uh, like therapist, psychotherapist, healthcare professional, stuff like that. There's only three places left though. So if anyone is up for that, then be quick. Um, inner child fun. Lucid dreaming is so much fun. It is literally the most fun you can have in your pajamas, almost. <laughs> people think that it affects your sleep in a negative way. They say, oh, but you're going to wake people up at four times a night, all this kind of stuff. That's just in the intensive retreats. You don't do that every night. It's just at certain periods where you might like to do that until you learn the practices and then you don't have to do such crazy sleep stuff. But actually, lucid dreaming makes you sleep better. For one, it makes people go to bed earlier. When you learn about the REM cycles and how most of your REM happens in the last third of the night, specifically the last two hours of your sleep cycle, and you learn that if you're only getting six hours sleep, but you boost that to eight hours, you double your chances of having a lucid dream. People stay in bed longer, they go to bed earlier, they get more sleep. And for a chronically sleep-deprived um, nation, I think that's a brilliant excuse to do it. If you're an insomniac and think, but I can't get to sleep anyway, insomniacs make brilliant lucid dreamers, actually because insomnia essentially is the process of trying to fall asleep. So if you give an insomniac something else to try to do, say, look, as you fall asleep, I don't want you to try to fall asleep. I actually want you to fall asleep reciting the certain affirmation 21 times before you black out. The brain shifts into something they can do. It becomes an empowering process, and then sleep happens naturally. You know, just yesterday, I was running a, a, the first workshop, <clears throat> a new workshop that I've got called Mindfulness of Dream and Sleep, for stress and trauma-affected sleep patterns. There's basically the stuff I've been doing with the veterans, but for civilian populations. And we actually didn't talk about sleep a lot. What we talked about was regulating the autonomic nervous system. Because all the sleep hygiene stuff, I don't look at your phone for two hours before bed and all this stuff, it's great. And I used to do that workshops on that. But now I've realized actually sleep is a natural process that will happen naturally in the absence of stresses that prevent it from happening. So sleeping better isn't actually about all these like sleep hacks and sleep hygiene hacks, I don't believe. It's about removing the stresses that prevent sleep happening naturally. So things like coherent breath work, 
20 minutes of coherent breathing within three hours of sleep will regulate the autonomic nervous system, moving the parasympathetic up into main dominance. And if you fall asleep with parasympathetic in dominance, you are not not going to sleep. You can't not. You know, it's not your work. It's a body-based approach. Rather than all the approaches before I was doing were mind down. You know, let's work out the worries that are stopping you fall asleep. But actually, the new approach that I've been trying with the veterans is those worries are going to be there. And because I'm not a trained therapist, I can't actually help you with those. What I can help you do is move your body into a place of relaxation where sleep will occur naturally. And that was a really big breakthrough for me. Um, yeah, so let's see what else. We, the, the other stuff now goes into a whole thing about um, crazy spirituality. Um, should we look at it? We've got seven minutes left. Quick whistle top store of crazy spiritual stuff. Okay, um, seven minutes before questions, and then we'll have questions. Um, so, um, lucid dreaming has a long tradition in three major um, spiritual traditions the Sufi tradition of mystical Islam, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and the Toltec Mexica. <coughs> so, the Sufis have a lot of lucid dreaming techniques that are so similar to the Tibetan Buddhist techniques that it's uncanny. So, when I interviewed the head of the Sufi Order UK, uh, Richard Hamilton? No. Nigel Hamilton, that's it, sorry. Um, Nigel was saying, of course, and there was crossover. You know, the, the similarity between a Buddhist yogi and a Sufi yogi is much closer than between a Buddhist monk and a Buddhist yogi. You know, the mystical traditions are like that. The esoteric traditions are so close. The exoteric traditions are where you find the differences but the esoteric traditions are very close anyway. Um, so in the Sufi tradition, a lot of lucid dreaming practice going back at least 600 years. Toltec Mexica. So uh, Mexica means, Mexica actually means people of the navel of the moon. So Mexico was one of the few places where the place name wasn't changed by the Spanish invaders. Mexico was always Mexico, but they, it wasn't called Mexico, it was called the place of the Mexica, the place of the practitioners of the people of the navel of the moon. And the people of the navel of the moon were a shamanic, um, uh, a shamanic practicing group who used lucid dreaming, mask work, and certain breathing and energy exercises, including some use of uh, plants, plant medicine, and uh, the ingestion of um, rattlesnake powder is one of the things they did. So if you take a rattlesnake, a dead rattlesnake, and you dry it in the sun, and then you powder an entire rattlesnake, it has exactly the correct amount of venom if you then eat a pinch of it to give you a psychedelic experience, but not to kill you. If you take half the rattlesnake and powder it with the bit, it's too much venom. So you've got to trust the shaman a lot. Um, it just tastes salty, actually, it doesn't, but you do have a, quite a funny experience, so I've heard. <laughs> um, and the Toltec, so Tol means people of the measure. So the Toltecs were another group in what's now called Mexico um, who would use the measure of the moon and a cosmological readings and mathematics to affect certain breath movements in what is essentially a Mexican form of pranayama. Very close to some of the pranayama techniques that you will know from uh, yoga and yoga classes. For example, things like breathing through certain nostrils, belly breaths, turning the head, breathing out like that, very similar. And you're like, but there was definitely no meeting a thousand years ago between Hindu mystics and Mexican mystics, and yet they come up with very similar breathing patterns to induce lucid dreams. So maybe they weren't meeting in the physical, but I think in the non-physical, there was absolutely meeting occurring. And so Sergio Magana, he's my friend. Uh, we've gone on tour together twice now. We do these really fun workshops where I teach the Buddhist stuff, he teaches the Mexican stuff, and then we kind of um, um, offer people both techniques. And he's got these brilliant books, 
the Toltec secret, all this stuff. So if you want to learn about that, check them out. And Tibetan dream yoga. Oh, loads, yeah. Loads of Native American stuff, yeah. Not specifically lucid dreaming, um, but the use of dream incubation is very big in the North, well, what we now call Northern America, so whatever that, that place was before we discovered it. Um, yeah, loads of, lucid dream, uh, loads of dream traditions. I haven't come across so many lucid dream traditions, though, yet. Yeah, and vision quests. Like a lot of the vision quests, you're asleep. You're so bloody hungry. So sleeping is quite a good way to spend a vision quest. So there's actually a lot of dreaming happening in the vision quest. Often the vision happens in a dream, not actually in the waking state vision. So yeah, there is a lot. But specifically lucid dreaming practices, I haven't come across yet. But I'm sure they exist. Uh, Tibetan dream yoga. So uh, milam ter. Milam means dream in Tibetan. And um, when I first came across this term, Tibetan dream yoga, I thought it was some sort of stretching that you did in bed. I was like, you know, dream yoga. But of course, yoga meaning union, milam meaning dream. So the milam ter the union within the dream state, the union of what? The conscious mind or the unconscious mind. Um, it would be incorrect to say that um, dream yoga is just Tibetan Buddhist lucid dreaming. That's not right. There are all these aspects of dream yoga. One of them, the foundation, is lucid dreaming. But you also have what in the West we call astral projection, out-of-body experience, and what in the West would probably best refer to as conscious sleeping practices. So this would be like lucidity in non-REM sleep. Um, so you're lucid but not in the REM sleep state. Less research on that, but we know it's, it, it happens. Um, if you're interested in astral projection, out-of-body experience work, then my wife is called Jade Shaw, and she does lectures and workshops on that. So I teach you to go in, she teaches you to go out. Jade Shaw is her name. Um, long history of this, back at least a thousand years. Main reasons for dream yoga. Here are some of the benefits. The big one I think we'll finish on. We've only got a couple of minutes before. <coughs> questions is a preparation for death and dying straight off the bat you see all the western uses for lucid dreaming are brilliant integration of trauma working with the inner child asking big questions they're brilliant but from a tibetan point of view the first thing you use lucid dream training to do is to train for the moment of your death because it's believed that when you die um, you're reborn in this belief system in this tradition of tibetan buddhism but there's a space in between it's said that the dying process mirrors the sleep process and that the dream process mirrors the after-death visions of what's called the bardo. Bardo is a Tibetan word that just means place in between and the after-death bardo state is this kind of um, hallucinatory dream-like experience that the mind stream enters into after the movement out of the corporeal body at the point of death. So essentially, at the point of death, your mind stream separates from the physical form, flips inwardly, just like it does in a dream. But now it's unhindered by the physical form and unhindered by the ego that's so attached to the physical form. So you experience the totality of the mind's expression. Now, most people die as they dream, non-lucidly. Most people do not know that they have died. It's a kind of a sixth sense type thing. You know, he doesn't know he's dead. Um, but the belief is if you can train yourself to fall asleep consciously and to dream consciously, then at the point of death, you might be able to die consciously and might be able to recognize the after-death hallucinatory appearances of the bardo as a dream. So literally, rather than going, oh, aha, I'm dreaming, you're, oh, aha, I'm dead. Now, why would you want to go, I'm dead? It's not Alan Partridge, aha, I'm dead. Um, why would you want to know you're dead? That sounds super scary, right? It's said that consciousness 
in the death bardo or in the death process is the highest accomplishment of the yogi and can lead to full spiritual awakening at the point of death. And that is pretty good timing. Um, so there's loads more stuff we could talk about, but let's not. I've talked too much. Let's have some questions from you. Um, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed it. How do the questions work? Does someone come around with a mic or do you just yell out? You just yell out. Okay, that was the first hand I saw. Okay, so I'll work backwards on your second question first. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know that study where it shows that lucid dreamers have bigger brains? Basically, they, they prove that people who have a lot of lucid dreams are more field non-dependent. Field, field non-dependent is essentially thinking outside the box. So they used to think that people who think outside the box more, who are more kind of uh, non-linear thinkers, more creative, have more lucid dreams. They now discover it's actually the other way around. If you train yourself to have lots of lucid dreams, you become someone who thinks more outside the box. You gain more waking state insight. If you think every time you have a lucid dream, you've trained a mental capacity that says, what I believe to be real is in fact a projection of my own mind. Every time we dream, we enter psychosis. If we can define an aspect of psychosis as believing internally generated hallucinations to be real, Every time we dream, we enter psychosis. Every time we become lucid in a dream, we engage an antipsychotic process in which we go, oh, what I believe to be real are in fact internally generated projections of my own mind. Now, every time you do that, the neural pathway to do with seeing through illusion, having greater insight is strengthened. And so it, it seems to make total sense what the scientists say, that lucid dreamers are less likely to be duped by illusion they are more likely to see through their own bullshit. They're less likely to, I think, within the kind of confines. Um, so yes, it seems that's definitely possible. Your first thing about genetic, uh, I don't know actually. I don't know. Me and my wife are maybe trying for a baby next year, and she's a really good lucid dreamer. So we'll see. Maybe our baby will be like a super lucid dreamer. It'll probably like hate it. Be, oh my God, mum's doing astral projection, dad's doing lucid dreaming, this is rubbish. Be like the most straight edge baby ever. Thank you. It's so weird being down here. You guys seem like giants. It's actually like a dream. Can you see me here? Do I look like a tiny midget, like a tiny dwarf? Okay. Person up there, yes. What is your understanding of the experiences of being in the lucid dream versus having an experience on ayahuasca? I haven't done ayahuasca. No, I'm saying you understand Well, because I haven't done it, my understanding is incredibly limited. Who am I to talk about an experience I haven't had? And my wife, however, has done ayahuasca and is a really great lucid dreamer. So her experience has been um, that it's similar in the same way as 
to really be stable in the ayahuasca experience, she said her lucid dreaming training really paid off because she knew it wasn't real. She knew however real these hallucinations look, they are a projection of my mind. And that was very helpful because it stops you from freaking out and knowing that, okay, I can literally touch them, I can smell them, they're talking to me. But so too in a lucid dream. So I can maintain a level of mental stability in there. Um, I know when I spoke to Stanley Krippner, who's a brilliant anthropologist who did a lot of work on ayahuasca, uh, when I interviewed him for the book and I asked him about lucid dreaming, he said there was an increase in lucid dreams reported in people um, after an ayahuasca experience. Um, so it basically seems in the kind of week after a big ayahuasca ceremony, people seem to have uh, more lucid dreams. But that's all I've got to share on that. I suppose the reason why I'm asking this is because I suppose in the lucid dream you, you're aware or, or the idea is that you know that this is a dream, whereas on ayahuasca the idea is that these are spirits or forces or whatever it is that you might be encountering oh, on the journey um, and therefore it's, it's experientially very different. Again, mm. it, it almost sort of sounds very similar from an objective point of view. Yeah, interesting. You know I keep saying this kind of 99% to 1%. I say everything in the lucid dream, like 99% is your own psychology, but there's this crucial 1% made up of kind of collective unconscious, possibly entities, stuff like that. Jade actually said it's quite similar in the ayahuasca experience. There's quite obviously stuff that just internally generated fears. You can see because it's based on your personal fears. And then there was some other stuff, rarer, which she was like, that wasn't me. It's like there was a spirit of ayahuasca that was not me. She's met her shadow dozens of times. She knows her, you know, when she said that, I was, yeah. She said most of it was my internally generated hallucination, but some of it was, she said that wasn't me. There was something that was uh, objective, yeah. I'm just gonna do some at the front. Uh, we had a chat before, somebody, this gentleman. Yeah, I, I can't remember who did this research, but it is, it sticks in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, it was an Israeli uh, research group who um, were curious to know, to understand, why certain uh, survivors, male survivors of the Holocaust, were going back, to living a normal life and back into business and being quite successful, and why others from the same cohort were not. And they did some sleep research and they were uh, waking both groups up during rapid eye movement sleep and discovering that in both groups, uh, they were having very similar uh, recollections, dreams associated with their traumatic experience. Mm. I mean, what I'll add is that, of course, what comes up in the mind to produce the dream is an interpretation of the actual experience, which I think is quite important. Mm. Um, but the ones who were <coughs> leading a normal life and mentally well, had the same dream, but they were not waking up mm. from these dreams. Whereas the others were repeatedly woken up by the nightmare. Yeah. And I think it ties in quite nicely with what you're talking about. You may want to say something about that. Yeah. Um, so we're talking here about some research that was looking at uh, Holocaust survivors um, who were reporting nightmares. Some of them were being woken by the nightmare, and some of them were sleeping through the nightmare, still being nightmarish but sleeping through it and waking in the morning. Now, Justin Havens, who's doing a PhD on a very similar study at the moment, um, in fact, he might have finished it, he's been looking a bit like I said, stay in the nightmare for as long as you can. Every time you wake yourself from a nightmare, the unintegrated energy or trauma that has led to the nightmare remains unintegrated. It seems to work in non-lucid dreams too. 
So it, when you're woken from a nightmare, the kind of integration process is skewed. Because of course, most of our integration happens in non-lucid dreams. Even if you get to be an expert lucid dreamer and a lucid every single night, so I'm talking seven, seven nights a week, seven lucid dreams, still 95% of your dream experience will be non-lucid, simply based on the amount of dreams you have. Five dream periods a night based on eight hour sleep cycle, multiple dreams in each dream period. Even if you have one lucid dream a night, 95% of your dreams will be non-lucid. So do not reject non-lucid dreams. It's not about saying lucid dreams are the best and we'll forget everything else. It's about saying lucid dreams are a kind of a peak experience within dreaming, but they are no, in no way better than non-lucid dreams. So, yes, it seems to, uh, to serve to reason that if we are woken from a nightmare, that integration process becomes skewed. If we can find a way to stay in the nightmare and let it uh, play out, the integration can occur. Thank you. Uh, one at the back, this is the lady in the green. Can you be a little bit louder, please? Yeah, okay. So um, let's say you're in a really bad nightmare and you become lucid. You have options. Your first option is to bail, wake up. Let's say the trauma is just too much, you're not ready to face it, you weren't aware of how real it was gonna seem, wake up. Um, sometimes it can actually be quite hard to wake up from a nightmare. You ever had it where you're trying to wake yourself up? This is because I believe there's a system in the mind that wants you to stay there. It's your shadow saying, but dude, I'm trying to help. No, no, don't wake up, I'm trying to help, we're trying to integrate. Ah, oh, damn it. You know, it's trying. So that's why it's so hard to wake for a nightmare, but that's just a theory of mine. Um, so I would say if you're lucid in the nightmare, option number one, the seeing is the doing. Just stay there. Even if you just need to count. One, two. See if you can stay in there for five seconds. See if you can stay in there for 10 seconds. Just allow the nightmare to occur, but know that it's a nightmare. It's like the difference between being in a horror movie and watching a horror movie. Being in a horror movie is terrifying. You think your life is in danger. Watching a horror movie can be scary and exciting. Still scary, you're still gonna jump when the monster comes out, but you know you're not in, in, at risk. <coughs> So the first option is that, just the seeing as the doing. Option number two is to become lucid in the dream, know that it's a dream, and somehow let the dream know that. So saying something like, I see you. Very, those three words are so powerful. The famous myth of Buddha under the tree, and on his final night of enlightenment, when essentially his shadow was being shown to him, it said he was attacked by the demons of violence, aggression, and desire basically shadow work, and he tried to fight them, and then finally, when fighting wasn't working, he turned to Mara, the demon of illusion, and he said, I see you, and he dissolved into light. The power of those three words in the lucid dream are just as powerful. So option number two, become lucid, I see you, you're a dream. That can be big, very empowering. Option number three, become lucid in the nightmare, actively move towards it. So not only saying I see you, but because I see you, I'm not scared of you, and I'm gonna to move towards you either into a hug or kind of literally just the, the body movement can be enough. That can be so empowering for traumatized people to do what they never thought they could do, moving towards what they had always run from. So that can be very powerful. And then the final option is actually not to wait for the nightmare, but to in a normal lucid dream, call forth your nightmare. Yeah, um, let's do this. Do you recommend having like a therapist or someone that's quite trustworthy in order to kind of 
overlook you. So that way you're not re-traumatizing yourself too deeply. And say, if you didn't have access to a therapist, then what could be some kind of safety guidelines that you can put in place for yourself so that way you're not... Brilliant. So it seems that re-traumatization through lucid dreaming is very rare. So rare I couldn't actually find any examples of it. But I don't want to say it can't happen because it must have happened at some point because everything happens to someone, right? But it seems to be very rare because of the fact that there's conscious awareness within there, so there's the empowerment of conscious awareness and the fact you're in the REM dreaming space which was designed as a place for integration of trauma. However, the reason I'm doing the CPD training for therapists is because I think the best would be for, for a heavily traumatized person, be working with a therapist on a weekly basis, doing one-on-one -on -one talking therapy, adding to that lucid dream training. Um, that would be brilliant. If you had someone to actually feedback your dreams to, guide you through the lucid dream, help you write the dream plan, um, stabilize you if the lucid dream was a bit shocking or if it was too much for you, that would be ideal. But we just don't have, or in this country, I don't know of any kind of qualified therapy, therapists who have kind of a qualification in lucid dreaming it just doesn't exist yet um, and I'm not offering it there's no body to offer the qualification but I'm offering a hundred hours training in it at least so hopefully that will will help but yeah best would be waking state therapy alongside lucid dream training I think that'd be really helpful thank you uh, let's go to the top again that gentleman there sorry it's horrible when someone points isn't it because it's like you might have had your hand up for 10 minutes and I just haven't seen you so I'm, I acknowledge that, and I'm sorry if you keep putting your hand up and I keep ignoring you. I'm literally just going for where my eyes go straight away. Um, after this, I'm not running off. I'll be around to chat to people and sign books and stuff. So if you didn't get your question here, please do come and ask me it. Yes? Lucid dreaming and sleep paralysis. Great question. Okay. Has anyone had the phenomenon of waking up out of a dream and uh, it fit well? It can feel like, or really is, that your eyes are open, you're paralyzed in the bed like that, um, you might have this weight on your chest, you might have kind of scary things in the room. Who said that? Loads of evil, okay. <laughs> so, it could well be that demons are attacking you. It could well be that the devil has come to possess your soul. I don't know, it could be. Who am I to say otherwise? But let me give you another option. When, when, when yeah, it's a cat in your chest. Um, <coughs> the REM dream state has three requisites. Um, muscular paralysis, rapid eye movement, cortical activation, oh no, sorry, cortical activation, um, muscular paralysis, and sensory blockade. Those are what mean you're in REM. So the body gets paralyzed, um, sensory blockade, so you stop taking in data from the outside world, the mind flips inwardly and starts taking on internally generated data. So we, we start dreaming, basically. We stop hearing things, we start hearing things in our head. That's what the dream is. And the third one is cortical blockade. Uh, sorry, cortical activation, so your brain switches on, very activated, stop hearing stuff in the outside world, and your body goes into paralysis and you're dreaming. Usually, like 99% of the time, when you wake up in the morning, all three of those systems switch off at once. But sometimes due to stress, sometimes due to genetics, very often due to recreational drugs, um, like after Glastonbury Festival, like the week after, my inbox on Facebook is just full of people, dude, you've got to help me. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you were on it, weren't you? Um, anything 
especially if you're on like pill, like uh, ecstasy or something, because it affects uh, serotonin, serotonin, melatonin affects sleep, all this kind of stuff. Um, but sometimes it just happens. Sometimes you're sleeping in a weird position, or or you're a bit stressed or something. So what will happen is two of them will switch off, but one of them stays switched on. So now your brain's activated normally. So you're a waking brain state. Cortical blockade is switched off, so you can now see the room, hear the room, you know, feel the room. But muscular paralysis is still switched on. So now you're conscious, but you're frozen in your bed like that. So most people freak when that happens. So the internal environment of your mind now becomes one based on fear. So you're paralyzed and you're in fear mode. So parasympathetic is off, sympathetic's on, you're super stressed, you're scared like that. Then the brain tries to get your back. The brain's always trying to help. It goes, oh wait, you're paralyzed. Um, should we still be dreaming? Oh, maybe we should. So you start dreaming with your eyes open. Now, if you dream with your eyes open, that is psychotic hallucination. If you see someone having a psychotic hallucination, the part of the brain creating the hallucination is the dreaming part. It's all brainstem acetabular lobe. That's why there's no point telling someone who's in psychotic hallucination it's not real. It will feel as real as your dreams. You can taste, you can touch, you can feel in a dream, right? Just the same when someone's having a psychotic hallucination. Um, so now suddenly you're paralyzed in the bed, you're super scared, and you're hallucinating. Now, the hallucinations will be based on the internal environment of your mind. The hallucinations will be based on the internal environment of your mind, which for most people is one of fear. So whatever you're scared of suddenly becomes in the room next to you. Goblins, demons, devils, all this kind of stuff. And it's culturally specific. It's amazing. In Japan, it's called Kashinabari, and it's like this kind of warrior dude who comes in and pushes down on you and fastens you in metal. Uh, in some West African cultures, it's called the witch who rides your back. Um, in Victorian British culture, it was incubus succubus. Uh, what was repressed in that culture was sexuality and, of course, blood flow to the genitals during REM dreaming sleep. Suddenly it was a sexualized demon that sat on your chest and made you have sexy thoughts and stuff. Um, <laughs> if you have sleep paralysis, you have two options to get out of it. Well, option one to get out of it, breathe out like you're letting air out of a tire, like this. If you can. Because the one thing that's not paralyzed during the REM cycle is your respiratory system. So it gets locked up like that because you're so scared. If you can breathe out and activate the parasympathetic nervous system, you'll lock out and you'll kind of be free of it. But if you want to practice lucid dreaming, don't bail because you're very close to a lucid dream. Because sleep paralysis is kind of like half awake, half asleep, a bit like lucid dreaming. So if you want to turn sleep paralysis into a lucid dream, oh, sorry, second option, if you want to stay in it and test my hypothesis, literally kind of think happy thoughts. If you are in that state and you drop into love, remind yourself, okay, this is not a demon in front of me. This is just a hallucination. Love. Think about something you love. Generate love. Step into your heart. You'll have a, an angel sitting on your chest rather than a demon. You can literally see it change, and that's fascinating to see your hallucinations change. But third, if you want to do lucid dreaming, move towards the hallucination. The hallucination is made of dream stuff. So if you kind of focus on it, literally like with your eyes, or just kind of imagining moving your energy towards whatever hallucinations you might have, and you might find yourself sucked back into the dream, but with full lucid awareness. Um, so that's a good one. You can definitely get lucid from that. Just before we take another question, I remember I said that I'd give some tips for this. Um, obviously, no hard sell, but there are books available on lucid dreaming to teach you and workshops you can come to. Um, but just a few things now. People get started today. Um, first thing is remembering your dreams. If you don't remember your dreams, very unlikely to have lucid dreams, but it's way easier to start remembering your dreams than you might think. 
For people who say they don't have any dream recall, I often say, when did you last try to remember your dreams? And they often go, but well, of course I don't try. I don't remember my dreams. And I'm like, okay, so tonight, fall asleep with a strong intention to remember your dreams. And most people will find within a couple of nights, they'll start remembering their dreams. Everyone dreams every night. There's no way to stop the human organism dreaming apart from heavy head injury. And even then, your dreams will come back within a couple of weeks, couple of months. Um, but what we don't do is have the intention to remember. So you could just sit on your bed today and just be like, tonight, and go, all right, I'm going to really try and remember my dreams. I really want to know. And then when you wake up in the morning, write them down. You want to take it a step further, access the hypnagogic state, that transitional state of mind that you go through as you fall asleep. Uh, it's a natural state of hypnosis. So as you fall asleep tonight, over and over, if you want to do the Tibetan style, 21 times you'll be saying, tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. Tonight, actually we do it together. Tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. Tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. Tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall. Give me your bank account details. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sounded a bit like we were part of a cult then, didn't it? Two minutes. Okay, cool. Um, so fall asleep saying that, having that strong intention. Next step, keep a dream diary. We're not keeping the dream diary to interpret our dreams, although if you want to, that's great and a brilliant thing. It's just not lucid dreaming. Um, the reason we write down our dreams is spot patterns. Let's say after a week of writing down your dreams, you then look back through them and you say, oh, look, I often dream I'm back at school or I often dream of my dead grandma, or I often dream of that, uh, the bully from school, whatever it is, <coughs> you find certain patterns in your dreams that can only happen when you're dreaming. These are called dream signs. If you can find ones that recur, those are really good, because then you fall asleep saying, if between now and breakfast I see my dead grandma, I must be dreaming, or if between now and breakfast I'm back at school, I must be dreaming. So again, use that self-hypnosis technique as you fall asleep to program yourself like a lucidity trigger that when you see that dream sign, you will know that you're dreaming. It's actually not that difficult. Um, you know when people say, uh, let's say you owe your mate at 20 quid. You say, oh, the next time I see a cash point, I've got to get out 20 quid because I owe it to my mate. You don't have to keep thinking about cash points. You say that a few times, embed it in your mind strong enough, the next time you see a cash point, something's triggered and you get out the 20 quid, right? Exactly the same with this. You just need to implant it deeply into your mind that the next time you see your dream sign, you'll know that you're dreaming. So those are kind of three little techniques you can try. Uh, and there are loads more techniques in the book and stuff. <clears throat> so I think I'm out of time, guys. But if you want to keep in touch, please give me your email. Uh, hook up with me on, in oh, actually, my Instagram thing is here. One sec. Oh, there we go. So thank you so much, guys. Have brilliant lucid dreams and lucid lives. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, guys. Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.